G'day, welcome to Just In Case Law. I'm Tanya Chapman. I'm a solicitor practicing in wills and estates, and I've recently become a tutor in elder law for the Western Sydney University. And this case is a special episode for the students of the elder law subject that I'm teaching in, because they've been required to read the case of Shosta versus Shosta, 2010 New South Wales Supreme Court decision, and I have decided to summarise it for them. This case is about powers of attorney. I know it sounds really dull, but it's all in the name. This is a powerful position. Your attorney can deal with your money and property. And if you have significant shareholdings, um, shares in a company, it can be a really powerful position to be the power of attorney. Which is why sometimes there might be arguments over whether a power of attorney was validly executed. If you wanted to challenge the actions of an attorney, you might say that the person didn't have capacity when they made it, which is what's covered in this case today. Hopefully, after we've gone through the facts of the case, all of this will make more sense. Bolivshlov and Aniela Shosta came to Australia as Polish immigrants in 1950. They had two children, Barbara and Andrew. The family had built up real property assets over the years. In particular, they had a block of flats at Burwood in Sydney, a block of flats in Cogra, Sydney, and a boarding house at Neutral Bay, also Sydney. These assets were housed in Shosta Holdings Pty Limited, which held as trustees of a discretionary trust. Aniela had a 50% interest in the business. Boleslav died in 1981, after which the family companies and trusts were managed by Aniela and her two children, Andrew and Barbara. Andrew took the leading role in the operation of the business. The boarding house at Neutral Bay included a separate flat. Aniela and her daughter Barbara had lived together in that flat since 1971, up until this matter went to court in 2010. When Andrew died in 2006, it left something of a void in the family businesses. Andrew had three children, Mark, Anna and Gregory, who wished to fill the role their father had previously held. So we have a family company which has significant assets. Two block of flats in Sydney and a boarding house in Sydney, at the very least. And we have various family members who would want to control that business. This matter involves Aniela's appointed attorney. And who was her attorney, given that she had changed the appointment so many times? In March 2004, when her son Andrew was still alive, she had appointed Andrew and his son Mark to be her attorneys. Four weeks after Andrew's death, she appointed two of his children, Mark and Anna, to be her attorneys. Only six months later, on the 28th of September 2006, she appointed her daughter Barbara as her attorney. In late 2006, someone must have noticed that, shoot, 
We did a new power of attorney, but we never cancelled those other ones. And thus, around late 2006, she revoked the appointment of her grandchildren, Mark and Anna. And almost a year after that, she also revoked the appointment of her son, Andrew and Mark. And provided she had capacity and all of these documents were done validly, that would mean the only power of attorney left standing was the September 2006 one that appointed her daughter Barbara to be her attorney. In July 2008, acting as her mother's attorney, Barbara appointed solicitor Mr Marsh to act as her mother's proxy to vote at general meetings of Shosda Holdings Pty Limited. Mr Marsh would of course vote as Barbara directed him to, as that is the role of the proxy, and the instructions would come from Barbara in her capacity as Aniella's attorney. And with companies, voting powers can mean a lot. It can mean control of the business, especially when you own a 50% share. And Barbara was controlling her mother's share. One of the matters that Mr Marsh was to vote on was changing the composition of the board of directors and the appointment of another person as director. So you can see it's a direct line to control of the family business. Control of the business equaled control of the properties. This was no small issue. Aniella's grandchildren, Mark, Anna and Gregory, initiated proceedings in the Supreme Court seeking a declaration that the September 2006 power of attorney was invalid. At the time it had been made, Aniella was 95 years old. She remained mobile and was largely independent. She was set in her ways and continued to deal with the rents at the boarding house, as she had done for many years. She did not deal with the other properties. She was sometimes vague and forgetful, and would sometimes use Polish even when speaking to someone who didn't speak Polish. In her cross-claim, Barbara sought a declaration that the September 2006 power of attorney was valid, and that the previous powers of attorneys had been revoked. The Powers of Attorney Act gives the Supreme Court power to review an enduring power of attorney on the application of an interested person, and to make orders in respect of that power of attorney, including the power to declare that the principal did or did not have mental capacity to appoint an attorney. The question was, did Aniella have capacity at the time she appointed Barbara as her attorney? The starting point to answer this question was, A. Was it the grandchildren's job to prove lack of capacity? Or B. Was it Barbara's job to prove that her mother had capacity at the relevant time? Although it may sound like I'm just being pedantic, this is actually really relevant to these kind of proceedings because it illustrates who's got to do the work. If it is the grandchildren's job to prove lack of capacity and they fail to do so, then Barbara doesn't have a job because the children, grandchildren haven't met their requirement. Whereas if it's her job to prove capacity, then if she fails to do that, 
then the grandchildren don't have to do anything because she hasn't done her part. So it is relevant to determining who is the one that has to meet a requirement. Who has to prove their case? The grandchildren argued that the question of capacity should be approached as it would be for a will. There, if a person is able to cast doubt on the capacity of the person to make the will, it is for the person seeking to uphold it to prove capacity. Likewise, they argued that as they had raised doubts as to Aniela's capacity, it was now up to Barbara, who was defending the September 2006 document, to prove that Aniela had had capacity when she made it. In contrast, Barbara argued the grandchildren were seeking to have the power of attorney declared invalid because of lack of capacity. It should fall to them to prove the lack of capacity. She referred to the presumption of sanity. It might reassure you to know that there is a presumption of sanity. To quote Leonard Shelford from the publication, A Practical Treatise on the Law Concerning Lunatics, Idiots and Persons of Unsound Mind, from 1847. Quote, The presumption of law is in favour of sanity, and therefore, if a person has never been subject to a commission of lunacy, nor has had an unsound state of mind imputed to him by his friend or relations, or even by common fame, the burden of proof is cast upon those who impeach his understanding. And where a particular transaction is sought to be avoided on the grounds of insanity, the evidence of it ought to apply to that particular period. And the question in such a case is, not whether the party had ever been insane before, but whether he was of sufficient sound mind on the day of the contract in question. End quote. The court sided with Barbara on this point. It was up to the grandchildren to prove lack of capacity. How then do they do that, and what even does that mean? To quote from the 2009 New South Wales case of Guthrie v Spence, quote, Under the general law, there is no single test for capacity to perform legally valid acts, end quote. Capacity depends on the act or transaction being done. Capacity to consent to medical treatment depends on the ability of the person to understand fully what medical treatment is being proposed. Testamentary capacity is the capacity to execute a will, which requires a person to know what assets they own, who they want to leave it to, and the potential consequences of leaving an entitled person out. Weighing up family members and making a rational decision of who you want to leave your estate to. Capacity to marry is dependent on being able to understand the nature of the relationship of marriage, not simply the act of dressing up and having everyone watch you, but the legal and moral commitments you are making. The capacity to execute a power of attorney requires the ability to understand the nature and effect of the document. This can depend on the size and complexity of the donor's assets and finances, because you need to understand the powers you are conferring on another person. If you own a house and bank accounts, you would need to understand that your attorney 
would have the power to access your bank accounts, withdraw money, set up or cancel direct debits. In relation to your house, they could sell, mortgage or transfer it. They might rent it out or enter into a lease on your behalf. So to give someone else the power to do those things, you need to first understand what those things are and the effect of them. However, if you are a shareholder in a company with voting rights, you need to know that your attorney can not only sell your shares in the company, they can also exercise your voting rights, and that those voting rights can affect who controls the company. It is interesting that in the Queensland Tribunal decision of RE-HAA 2007, it was stated that a power of attorney is more unfamiliar and more complex to most members of the community than a will, and as such, a higher cognitive ability and standard of capacity is required to do a power of attorney than is required to do a will. And that could very well be the case, because if you ask most people, do you know what a will is, they usually do. Whereas if you ask them what is a power of attorney, you're more likely to find that people don't know what the document is, or they don't know fully the extent of it. If a person did not have the necessary capacity when they did the power of attorney, the power of attorney is void. But what if the donor had the capacity to understand simple financial tasks, but not complex? Is the whole document void? No. Section 17 of the Power of Attorney Act states that a power of attorney is not ineffective only because a particular act was beyond the understanding of the donor. In that situation, the attorney is authorised to do anything that that the donor had capacity to understand, but nothing beyond that. In this case, the grandchildren needed to prove that Aniella did not have capacity to understand the nature and effect of a power of attorney in September 2006 when she appointed Barbara. If if successful, the power of attorney would be invalid. There were quite a few witnesses in this case which the judge separated into three categories. We have the family members, Barbara, the grandchildren, and some other family members who gave evidence about interactions they had had with Aniella, things she had said and done in the family context. Then there was her community, friends, neighbours and professionals who interacted with her, who could also give evidence of things they had seen her do or say that might give insight into her mental capacity. And finally, we have medical evidence. There were three doctors who had treated Aniella around the time she signed the power of attorney. In relation to the grandchildren, Justice Barrett noted that the usefulness of their evidence was reduced, quote, by the fact that none gave his or her own separate recollections, uncoloured by matters communicated by the others, elements of reconstruction, and an obvious emphasis upon aspects that might be thought to indicate 
lack of understanding and awareness on the part of Mrs. Shoster. End quote. Putting it in plain English, their evidence really wasn't reliable because you could see that they had talked to each other, and in talking to each other, they had formed an impression of events that had happened in the past. So rather than relying on their own memory and what they recalled, they relied on a collective memory to bolster accounts. So there was elements of reconstruction. And it was also obvious that they were emphasising certain aspects that supported their case or that they could skew to support their case. To give some examples where they did not present well as witnesses, starting with Mark. Mark said that, at the end of 2005, he considered Aniela to be insightful and coherent. But then he also said that he doubted her capacity on the 25th of December 2005, which I do believe counts to be the end of 2005. He said that she did not know it was Christmas Day. But then again, he also admitted that on that very day he spoke to her about refinancing a National Australian Bank loan of $1.5 million at 6.5% fixed interest and compared that facility with another one. So which was it? Was she incapacitated so much she didn't know it was Christmas? Or did she have the faculties to compare bank loans, terms and conditions? When confronted with this conundrum, he was unable to give an explanation. Moving on to his sister, Anna. Anna gave evidence that she believed their grandmother was unable to understand even simple conversations as far back as mid-2004. Yet, at exactly that time, it was Anna who had spoken to Aniela about changing a family trust from a discretionary trust to a fixed trust. If she didn't think that her grandmother had capacity to have a simple conversation, why would she even attempt a complex one? The third and final grandchild was Gregory, who relied heavily on what he was told by other family members and had little independent recollection of events. Let's turn to the other side, Barbara, and what evidence she had to offer. Barbara had lived with her mother since 1971, so was well familiar with her mother's daily life and interactions. Barbara went out to work each weekday, but living in the same house with her mother for so long, she definitely had the most contact with Aniela. They had even gone on two cruises together, one in 2005 and another in 2007. Aniela had a fall during the second cruise and had to be hospitalised. Barbara stated that after Andrew's death in March 2006, their mother became withdrawn, subdued and depressed. Despite this, she was still competently dealing with her own affairs. Barbara stated that, in late 2006, she had noted that her mother was obstinate and insisted on doing things as she had always done them, even when it was clear that there was an easier path she could have taken. At the beginning of 2007, Aniela had a tendency to speak in Polish in situations where it wasn't 
appropriate, such as when she was speaking to someone who couldn't understand Polish. Also, after Andrew's death, Aniela would only deal with the Neutral Bay boarding house and not the other properties, and could not deal with more than one matter at a time. Even though she made these omissions, Barbara's case was that during 2006 and 2007, her mother was able to read and understand documents, was able to understand issues in relation to the company and properties, and played a fundamental part in giving the instructions to the solicitor for the preparation of the September 2006 power of attorney. As proof of her mother's capacity, Barbara gave evidence of the discussions they had after Andrew's death, when they had to determine what would happen with the family company and trust. Justice Barrett noted, quote, There was clearly much discussion between Barbara and Mrs. Shoster about what should be done in relation to the family finances, for which they had been content to see Andrew take primary business responsibility. Barbara, it is fair to say, became anxious about her financial security and that of her mother, and was not convinced that any of Andrew's children could replace their father in the family business context. She did not have the same confidence in the next generation as she had had in her brother. End quote. Instead of supporting her case, Justice Barrett noted that it was not only clear that Aniela's thinking and decision-making was heavily influenced by Barbara, but also that Barbara had a tendency to believe that whatever she thought, her mother also thought. That was the family witnesses, let's move on to the community. One of the community witnesses was Mr. Jersh. He had been the family accountant from about 1999. He said that after Andrew's death, the management of the trustees fell into limbo. He thought the company needed to sort a few things out and suggested a family meeting of all the shareholders and beneficiaries. The first meeting was in August 2006. This was one month before the questionable power of attorney was signed. Mr. Jersh recalled that during that meeting, no one questioned or even mentioned Aniela's capacity. The second meeting was in November 2006, almost two months after the power of attorney was signed. Soon after the meeting started, Anna produced a medical certificate that stated that Aniela did not have capacity to make financial decisions. Anna, Mark and Barbara then all raised the power of attorney that appointed each of them. You can almost imagine the scene where Anna's produced this medical certificate and now all of them know that the power of attorney can take control and all of them think they are the attorney. So Anna's producing her power of attorney document, Mark's producing his, and Barbara produces hers, and hers is the oldest. It would present quite a dramatic scene in a movie. Mr. Jers noted that Aniela appeared nervous and fidgety. He said she responded to questions in a coherent and appropriate manner, but that when the meeting became heated and emotional, she did not participate. 
Another of the community witnesses was Mr. Marsh. He is the solicitor who prepared and witnessed the power of attorney. He received handwritten letter of instructions, and he assumed it was written by Aniella, but later came to think it had been written by Barbara and signed by Aniella. The letter said that she needed to make sure that parts of the Neutral Bay property passed to the grandchildren, but also so that Barbara would not be forced to leave the house during her lifetime. Following the letter, there was phone and letter correspondence between the solicitor and Barbara. On the 28th of September, when Barbara and Aniella went to the solicitor's office to sign the will and power of attorney, it was the first time that the solicitor had contact with Aniella. The solicitor saw Aniella alone. In evidence, he said that he read the power of attorney to her, and she said to him, Yes, I want Barbara to look after my affairs. He was cross-examined in detail about whether Aniella really understood the effect of the document she was signing. For instance, he was asked whether she understood that in signing the power of attorney, she was giving Barbara the power to appoint a new trustee of the family trust. He said that she did, but was unable to give examples of conversations that supported this. Another solicitor, Mr Erickson, was also involved in the signing of the documents and gave evidence. He too confirmed that Aniella understood what she was signing. Finally, we move on to the medical evidence, and as I mentioned, we have three doctors who saw Aniella around the relevant time. Dr Lukasiewicz is a Polish-speaking GP who saw Aniella on four occasions from January 2006 all the way through to February 2007, so right over the relevant period. Teresa, Andrew's wife and Aniela's daughter-in-law, was present throughout the consultations. In April 2006, Dr Lukasiewicz did a mini mental state examination, a test used to assist in determining a person's mental capacity. Aniella scored 10 out of 30. She was unable to state her date of birth, where she lived, she could not copy a drawing of a hexagon, and was unable to count backwards from 7 to 1. A score of 10 out of 30 indicated moderate to severe dementia. Dr Lukasiewicz formed the opinion that Aniella had dementia and showed clear signs of it. There was another appointment on the 25th of September, just three days prior to signing the power of attorney. Dr Lukasiewicz noted that Aniella did not respond to her greeting or in any way. By the final visit in February 2007, Dr Lukasiewicz believed that Aniella's capacity had diminished even further. At Teresa's request, Dr Lukasiewicz provided a certificate stating that Aniella was suffering from dementia since April 2006 and was, quote, not capable of making business or legal decisions due to her condition, end quote. When called to give evidence, it was Dr. Lukasiewicz's opinion that there was no possibility that Aniella was capable of understanding a power of attorney at the time she signed hers. The next doctor we have is Dr. Roberts. 
Dr. Roberts is a specialist psychiatrist who saw Aniela in October and November 2006 and again in February 2007, so not long after the power of attorney was made. Again, Teresa was present for the consultations, and because Dr. Roberts did not speak Polish, she also translated sometimes for Aniela. Dr. Roberts, too, did a mini mental state examination in October, in English with Teresa translating, and Aniela scored 17 out of 30, which was an improvement on her previous score. It makes you wonder what extent the translation influenced that. Aniela could not recall the date, month, or year. Based on that, as well as an MRI of her brain, Dr. Roberts made a diagnosis of dementia. When he saw Aniela the third and final time in February 2007, he noted that she had deteriorated even further. She told him at that appointment that she had signed some documents but was confused about who asked her to sign documents, and then later said she had not signed anything. She appeared agitated to the point of incoherence something that occurs in dementia patients. Dr. Roberts concluded that Aniela did not have capacity to make anything but the simplest of decisions when she did that power of attorney. Third and final is Dr. Ogle. Dr. Ogle saw Aniela once in March 2007, so about five months after the power of attorney had been done. Dr. Ogle is a specialist in geriatric medicine and also doesn't speak Polish. This time it was Barbara who attended and translated. Dr. Ogle's evidence was that Aniela's attitude and behaviour during the consultation was appropriate. She could read and understand short passages of text and provide simple instructions. She could understand the nature of her property holdings and the concept of a power of attorney. She was able to respond coherently to questions in a way that reflected understanding, retained long-term memory, and had some impairment in relation to orientation, concentration, short-term memory, and task sequencing. Dr. Ogle reported that Aniela may not have understood the finer details of a power of attorney, but would have been able to understand the major purpose and intent of the document. However, at the time of her examination, Dr. Ogle did not know that there was a dispute over the power of attorney. She was not specifically asked to assess capacity to give a power of attorney, but more to do a general assessment of capacity. During the hearing, she was challenged on the testing she had done. The testing she had done to assess Aniela's capacity. Dr. Ogle agreed that Aniela's responses to her questions were learned responses, instinctive reactions of agreement and politeness rather than a reflection of insightful appreciation of the questions and the answers she was giving. So it was that initially we had two doctors saying no capacity and one doctor saying yes capacity, But during the trial, through questioning and showing further evidence, the third doctor reassessed the situation and agreed 
that Aniella would not have had capacity to do the power of attorney in particular. We now have the battle of the witnesses, lawyers versus doctors. We have the two lawyers stating that Aniella had capacity and the three doctors agreeing that she did not. Take a second and think, who were you more persuaded by? Outcome. It was clear that Aniella's capacity had deteriorated over time. When the deterioration started, was hard to pinpoint. Justice Barrett stated, quote, Each of us begins to age from the moment of birth, and the process is, of its nature, gradual, end quote. Very morbid? All the family members agreed that Aniella's capacity had to began to decline even before Andrew's death. But to what extent? Clearly, the grandchildren were saying she didn't have capacity by September 2006, whereas Barbara was saying she did, and it declined further after that. Justice Barrett determined that as of September 2006, Aniella was exhibiting behaviour that made it clear she had impaired comprehension an awareness outside the familiar confines of her home and the ordinary running of her boarding house. He referred to the findings of Dr. Lukasevich, who formed a clear diagnosis of dementia in April 2006. Dr. Lukasevich had seen Aniela in not only on four occasions over that period, but had also seen her previously, had seen her as part of the community in social settings over a long period of time. So she knew Aniella, and she knew what she was like before her capacity began to decline, and this gave her a better understanding of the extent to which Aniella's capacity had diminished by the time of those assessments. She was also able to communicate with her in Polish, which removes any outside influence and ensures clear communication to do those assessments. At the end of the day, the judge found that the medical evidence proved that Aniella did not have capacity to understand the nature and implications of the power of attorney she had signed. As a result, it was determined that the September 2006 power of attorney was void. Therefore, Barbara's actions in appointing a proxy to vote at the general meeting of Shosta Holdings was invalid and of no effect. The resolution supposedly passed at that meeting, the appointment of the director, were invalid and of no effect. That was the case of Shosta versus Shosta, and as I said, it's a case that we were looking at in part of the elder law subject that I'm a tutor for this semester for Western Sydney University. And I just want to explain why it's so relevant for elder law. Because older people are vulnerable to exploitation, and this is one form, getting them to sign a power of attorney when they don't understand the effect of it. Because an attorney has power over all the money, assets and property 
that the older person has. You are in effect handing over free control over all of your assets and property to someone else. And you really need to understand that the effect of that for it to be valid. Otherwise, the law and the community needs to step in and protect that older person. In this case, it was the grandchildren who stepped forward and said, no, that document is not valid. Nan didn't understand what she was doing, and we're not going to let you control the company. I hope you found this case interesting, and I hope you'll join me for my next episode.